Our scripture passage this morning is Genesis chapter 5, the whole chapter, Genesis chapter 5. The title of the sermon, The Line of Adam, well, the truth is, after I was thinking about that, we're all the line of Adam, and so I think it would make more sense if I titled the sermon, The Line of Seth. We're going to read... Old Testament, Genesis chapter 5, Pew Bible, page 8. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, bless the reading and preaching of your word. Bless the meditation of my heart. Pray, Lord, that this sermon would be a blessing to us all as we consider what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. And after he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more, because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said... He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands, caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Storytellers are fond of reminding us 
that living forever only sounds awesome until you try it. Movies and books abound of the dark side to living forever. Many of you might have been reminded of that movie recently because you woke up every day and strangely it was still election day. Like the movie Groundhog Day, right? Well, one of these movies that talks about the dark side of living forever is a movie entitled Death Becomes Her. It's a 1992 classic about two Hollywood women who are past their youthful glory days and desire to look young forever and stumble upon a Beverly Hills socialite who also happens to be a sorceress who gives them a potion that reverses aging and bestows upon them the gift of eternal life. Except their eternal life turns out to be much more dead than they signed up for. Their bodies decay, but they continue to live on. And because they are so obsessed with appearances, their looks require constant maintenance. And so even though they live on, their living looks more, much more like death than life. Hence the name of the movie, Death Becomes Her. Well, our scripture passage this morning reminds me a lot about this movie because we see generations of people living much longer than is normal today, than we are accustomed to, under the curse that's been placed upon them. And we hear that repeated refrain at the end of every description of the next generation. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. We see them looking for an escape from a life that looks much more like death. Looking for a final and eternal rest from this great burden and misery. And the only breaks we have from that repeated pattern that almost seems to lull us to sleep. This description about this person had this son and then lived this many years. And they had other sons and daughters. And after that, he died. Are these great shining flashes. Of Enoch and Noah and what they point to beyond death, what's been promised, what will come, an eternal rest from the misery that our first parents have brought upon us. Our theme this morning is eternal rest is found only in Christ's victory over death. Eternal rest is found only in Christ's victory over death. Our three points this morning. The first is the image remains, and it covers the first three verses in chapter 5. The second is the line continues, and covers verses 4 through 27. And then finally, rest promised in verses 28 through 32. Well, let's look at that first point together. The image remains. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 5 tells us that we're transitioning into another section of Genesis. When it says, this is the written account of Adam's line, it's the word Toledot, the book of the genealogy of Adam. The marker that separates the ten sections of the book 
of Genesis. It's a transition in the narrative. So before going into this new section, there's a refresher, a reminder about where humanity has come from. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. There's a statement that mankind is created in the likeness of God is uh, citing chapter 1, verse 26. And the blessing of humanity by God, he created them male and female and he blessed them is reiterating verses 27 through 28 of chapter 1. Within the context of a genealogy, it is important to note that we are now told God named the first humans. And that's important because in this genealogy, we're told so-and-so had a son and they named him so-and-so. So-and-so had a son and they named him so-and-so. Parents bestow names on children. And since Adam and Eve are the first humans, we are told in context with this description of a genealogy that God, their heavenly father, gave them their name, man, which is the Hebrew word, Adam, mankind, humanity. But in verse 3, another very important element is included that links God creating man in his own likeness to that of procreation which occurs between Adam and Eve and having their son Seth. It is important that we read in verse 1, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and when they were created, he called them man. And then in verse 3, we're told when Adam had lived 130 years, we have this very distinct phrase that's not in the rest of the genealogy. He had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Adam has a son in his own likeness, in his own image. And he named him Seth. What we're supposed to grasp from that is that there's a correlation. There's a connection between God creating mankind in his own image and likeness. And Adam having a son in his own image and likeness. Well, it tells us three things which are important for the rest of the story of redemption. The first is that the image of God remained after the fall of mankind. There are even still theologians today who will argue that when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, that the image of God was lost. That the image of God is not something inherent in us. That we've lost it and that we must regain it through salvation. But here we are being told God created man in his own image and likeness. And that also Adam had a son in his own image and likeness. That correlation tells us that the truth that we are made in the image of God is something that has been distorted, but it has not been destroyed. It's not taken away after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and were cursed. The second thing it tells us is that the image of God is explained by sonship. It is identified as a matter of representational likeness, not of representative office though that element is still involved. And the third thing it tells us is not only that the image of God has remained after the fall, but that there is a giving of the imputation, the giving of Adam's nature through his posterity. 
And because of the fall, this is a nature that is twisted, frail, mortal, and miserable. In fact, that's the very reason why there is an inversion of the likeness and image. In Genesis, we're told we are made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. In verse 3, we're told that Adam had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. This tells us, yes, that the dignity of being made in the image of God is something that remains. But it also tells us that the curse, the fall, the nature of being fallen in sin and broken that Adam inherited because of his rebellion against God is also something that he carries on, that he gives to the generations that come after him. That we are fallen in Adam. This is the image of God which Christ came to heal and restore in us. Christ came so that the imputation, the giving of Adam's nature to us, fallen humanity, could be overcome by the giving of his righteousness to us. We cannot escape our sinful natures apart from Christ. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. That distorted and twisted and broken image of God, we have been passed down from generation to generation going all the way back to Adam giving it to his son Seth, is being restored in the salvation Jesus Christ has given us. And we'll be made whole again. We are being restored in Christ from the brokenness that we've inherited from our first parents. That's the first point. The image of God remains. But what about the second point? The line continues. The promised line of the seed of the woman. Which covers verses 4 through 27. And be assured we won't go verse by verse. But I do want to make sure we understand a couple of points. What you see here is a typical formulaic genealogy. And it's a selective but not exhaustive genealogy of all the descendants from Seth to Noah. But there's a shocking refrain that is meant to remind the reader of the curse put upon humanity. That God said to Adam, From dust you came, to dust you shall return. And it's something that does not shock us because we've grown accustomed to death. We've grown accustomed to the experience of death around us. But to read Genesis chapter 1 and 3, to hear of the glory that Adam and Eve had, the promise of eternal life that they were given, that they just had to simply obey God, not take from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to hear about the the horrible murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And then to read here in Genesis chapter 5. Yes, the line goes on. Yes, uh, they, are, they are being fruitful and multiplying as God says. But you hear that refrain and you can't, 
You can't just pass by that as simply a, a, an accustomed way of speaking, a just generic way of speaking that you have to really let that sink in. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. That phrase should be foreign to us because we were not created to die. And death is supernatural. It's an invasion of what is wrong. And that phrase, and then he died, it's used to punctuate the genealogy of the godly line and points to the truth that through the one man, Adam, and his sin, death has come as a common curse upon all men, wicked and righteous. And what we are meant to see in this genealogy is the faithfulness of God in preserving the messianic line, the line of Jesus our Savior, in a fallen world that... If we understand the direction that the line of Cain was taking, it's escalating in its evil more and more until we reach its climax in chapter 6 when God will say, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air. For I am grieved that I made them because their hearts were evil, only evil all the time. This does not mean that true faith was limited to only those of Seth's descendants, but that God did give them continuous representation from the time of Adam until Noah. And one notable representative in this genealogy of the continued faithfulness of God to bring about salvation is that of Enoch. In fact, if you notice, the pattern of the genealogy goes like this. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. It's like that over and over and over again. Until, boom, you get to Enoch, and there's a breaking of that pattern. And the author is doing this on purpose. It's meant to grab your attention. You're being drawn into this genealogy, and it's saying the same thing over and over again. I get it. You know why? I mean, that's why we skip that part when we're in our Bible reading, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, so-and-so had so-and-so, yeah, yeah. And then you get to verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And, and, you know, this is just normal. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. He walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. It pulls you out of that pattern. It grabs your attention. It tells you something is different about this man. This entry that the authors wanted to grab our attention with. It helps to emphasize Enoch's life in contrast to others. It's telling us, the author is telling us, that Enoch is not like the others. He stands out amongst his peers. Enoch walked with God 300 years. 
That phrase is so simple, right? But what does it mean? Well, to walk with God is an idiom for communing with God. What we are being told is that Enoch constantly communed with his creator in a way that harkens back to the garden. When we're told that God showed up walking in the garden. And there's a couple of notable things about Enoch. He is the seventh generation listed from Adam through the line of Seth. In the line of Cain, Lamech is the seventh generation. And this is done on purpose so that they can be juxtaposed. And oh man, what a contrast. We're told here about Enoch, who walked with God and who was taken and was no more. And we're told then about Lamech, who boasted about his two wives and how he would have more vengeance than God himself. Not only should Enoch and Lamech be contrasted, but also the two Enochs who share a name. One is to be praised and seen as greater because he walked with God, he lived with God, he communed with God, even greater than the first Enoch who had the first city named after himself. We're told in Jude 14 and 15 that Enoch was a prophet who spoke of the coming judgment on evil and wicked humanity. He was one of that faithful generation, that faithful line that spoke out against the rising corruption going on in humanity in his day and age. That would climax in Genesis chapter 6 when we read, God saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So we can say that part of walking with God could be that he received special revelation from God so that he could participate in the Lord's judicial confrontation with mankind. He was speaking out and warning that judgment was coming. In verse 24, we read that one day Enoch was no more because God took him away. Now, when you understand that refrain in this passage, in the genealogy, at the end of every person's description of the son, how long they lived, how many years they lived, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. And you get to Enoch, and you expect to read... And then he died. And you don't read that. Another sharp contrast given by the author, seeking to grab our attention. What do you mean? I, I thought that, that death was common to all mankind now. We're saying that Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. God took him away. Well, Hebrews 11 Verse 5 tells us that Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death because he was commended as one who pleased God. And the only other person who has taken away body and soul without having to experience death is the prophet Elijah, who was taken away on a flaming chariot. And this can point us to the kind of age both of these prophets existed in, Enoch and Elijah. Elijah was there in Israel, the troublemaker of Israel. 
to be someone who was warning the people of coming judgment. That God saw their unfaithfulness. God saw that they had turned away from him and were going after idols, going after all kinds of other things. And God sends a prophet to speak to them, calling them to turn back. That was Elijah's function. And very much so could have been Enoch's function as a prophet as well. God warns the people of coming judgment through both of them. Enoch's being carried away by God is a demonstration to all those before and after the flood that life continues beyond this world. That there is eternal glory with God for those who have faith. That death is not the final answer, despite the refrain, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. Enoch, his description, his part in this genealogy is pointing us to the reality that eternal rest comes only through Jesus' defeat of death. Both the translation of Enoch and Elijah straight to heaven are prophetic signs in the midst of prevailing death, of the redemptive victory over the prince of death that is to be won by the final and ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ. Enoch, walking with God, and then he was no more because God took him away, is hope in the midst of, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. To walk with God is such a simple phrase, but what does it really mean? Matthew Henry, in writing on this passage in his commentary, says it means of God to set him before us and to act as if we were always under his eye. It is to make God's word our rule and his glory our end in all actions. It is to make it our constant care and endeavor in everything to please God and in nothing to offend him. This is not a duty for Christians as much as it is a pleasure and a privilege. In the New Testament, Paul calls us to not only live by the Spirit, but also to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. He says to us that if we've received Christ, we are called forward to walk with Him. So my question is, are you walking with the Lord? And to walk with the Lord is to walk by faith and not by sight. It's to trust and obey. It's to know that the greatest experience one can have in this life and the next is sweet fellowship with God Almighty. To walk with Him. To know Him. To enjoy Him. Finally, we come to our final point, rest promised. After Enoch's block in this genealogy shakes us from that repeated pattern by going off something different, drawing our attention to the uniqueness of Enoch in comparison to others before him and after him, we have another moment that is the same. After we're told about Methuselah, who is the longest living man described in the Bible, 969 years. 
We're told about Lamech. He lived 182 years and he had a son, and we have another break in that pattern. Verse 29, he named him Noah. And we have a description for why his name was given, unlike the other names. He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. In stark contrast to the blasphemous boasts of the Canaanite Lamech, this Lamech's naming of his son expressed a longing for the heavenly realm to which God took Enoch, an existence beyond the sin-cursed temporal existence he had experienced. Maybe Methuselah told Lamech about Enoch, his dad. Who only lived 365 years and was no more because God took him away. Maybe Lamech, the father of Noah, was thinking, why can't I be taken away? I'm tired of digging in this ground, pulling up these weeds, dealing with these thorns. The name Noah derives from the Hebrew verb meaning to rest. And so the description of his naming, which is given for us in the NIV as, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed, would make more sense if Noah's father's saying was translated in this way. He will give us rest from the labor and painful toils of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. What Lamech is declaring here is not simply comfort from the work that we have to do, as if, wait, I can't wait for Noah to invent the lazy boy so after a good hard day's work, I can put my legs up and have some comfort. Right? No, what what Lamech is hoping Noah will do is bring an end to the toil. Bring an end to the labor. Then maybe Noah is that promised seed of the woman that we could have an end to the refrain. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. Lamech clearly feels the pain of God's curse on the ground and on mankind and expresses hope that one day the existing misery and corruption will be terminated. Noah's name is a cry for salvation, for rescue from the misery of sin. And Noah's name is an expression of hope once again that maybe Noah would be that promised seed of the woman, the coming deliverer who would once and for all crush the head of the serpent and bring an end to all this misery. But of course we read, altogether Lamech lived 777 years and then he died. There's only one who can truly bring rest and it's not Noah, but rather one descended from him, the true Redeemer, Jesus Christ, came into this broken and cursed world 
and said to all who are listening to him and to all who hear him now, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's only one who brings rest. Final, complete, eternal rest. And that's Jesus Christ. Will you turn and find rest in him? Will you, like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, come to the place of deliverance and be freed from your burden? Will you find in Jesus Christ the one who brings comfort and rest, that carries you through the hardship of that repeated refrain that we're still living in, and then he died, and then he died. Knowing that it is in Jesus Christ that the death we experience now is not a continuation of our misery, but a ceasing of it as we are transferred into the presence of the Lord Almighty and await the day when we, with all our brothers and sisters, will be restored bodies resurrected. And the refrain, and then he died, will cease to be. For the final enemy will be death. And God's people's victory cry will be, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In the movie, Death Becomes Her, we find that our experience is much like these ladies. No matter what we try to do, we keep looking like death. Death becomes us. But in Jesus Christ, we become new creatures. We have new life. The seed of eternal life has been planted within us and will sprout until it is fully bloomed. Because all those who have true faith in Jesus Christ have found that eternal rest can only be found in Christ's victory over death. May you cherish, may you live in that victory. And if you have not received that rest in Christ, I pray you will turn to Christ and find him to be a perfect Savior. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to be reminded that all humanity has been made in your image and is worthy of dignity and respect, that also the distortion and the brokenness of the image of God within us is being restored in Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, perfect representation of your nature. We pray also, Lord, that you would help us by your grace, by your spirit, to walk with you as Enoch did to commune with you and to find 
in you the greatest pleasure and the greatest joy we can have in this life and in the life to come. And finally, Lord, we pray that we would seek our rest, our comfort, not in anybody else, not in anything else in this world that offers a false sense of comfort, a false sense of rest, but that we would find our eternal rest in you, our Lord and Savior. That we would find our eternal rest in Jesus Christ, who in his coming and his dying and his resurrection defeated death forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.